Good morning, everyone. You can hear me okay. Right. Well, we're carrying on with our Timeless series, which is looking at God's plan and design for men and women that results in mutual flourishing. Philip kicked off the series looking at our sameness in being made in the image of God. We then looked at how within that image, male and female are different to each other and God's purposes for those distinctions. We saw the fall and how sin corrupts, but then Jesus brings restoration uh, and making it possible for men and women to live in beautiful complementarity. And last week, we looked at sex and what God says his gift of sex is for. This is all led up to and helps set the foundation for this week as we look at marriage and what it points to. Many of the points that you'll hear today we've heard already in previous weeks, and that's because God's, uh, God's design is interwoven. There are many common threads that build on one another because God has a big vision for men and women. That isn't just an afterthought, but part of his big plan. If you're a guest with us here today and you're exploring Christianity, we're so pleased that you're here. We'll be teaching what the Bible says about marriage and are aware that you might be, uh, have, have a very different perspective and come from a very different place. And that's okay. In fact, if you're exploring here, we'd encourage you to focus on who is Jesus and did he die and rise again? Jesus believed that the Bible's teaching on marriage was God's timeless truth. So we as Christians also believe it has authority in our lives too. There'll be a photo coming up, yes. So John and I have been married for 16 years, and we have four beautiful children that you may have seen. If you haven't seen, you've probably heard them. (laughs) And as a couple, I think we make a pretty good team. It's not always easy, and we need constant guidance from God's Word and the Holy Spirit to help us in our marriage. The thought of marriage can conjure up different emotions in people. We're living in an age where marriage isn't as highly valued. In fact, the number of people getting married has been on a steady decline since the 1970s. And there's a number of reasons for that, some I'm sure that you know. People might think that marriage crushes individual identity. People want to leave their options open. Or just purely think that nothing is gained by marriage. Well, I want to say marriage is great. I love being married to John. We have lots of fun together and lots of laughter, and we've been on many adventures, and I hope and pray we'll be on many, many more together. There have also been hard bits and hard work and tears, but I love being part of the marriage team. Should be a yes. (laughs) Typical life in the Ford family. (laughs) Today, we want to present a biblical vision of what marriage is to be. We're aware that all of us are a work in progress and the vision presented may be so far from what our marriages look like at the moment. If there's one thing the church must be, it must be a place where there is grace. Some of you here today will be divorced or be in a difficult marriage or maybe your marriage just isn't what you thought it was going to be like. Maybe you're single and longing to get married Or maybe you're same-sex attracted and wondering what this means for you. And we want to be sensitive to that. Let me say, we don't believe that marriage is better than singleness. Married couples or those who are single both have a unique role in living for Jesus and declaring the gospel through their lives. We'll be looking at singleness in the coming weeks. And then next term, I think there's going to be a chance to uh, look at homosexuality and transgender and, and issues like that. Because these are important uh, topics to be addressed. 
And if you're single and you're here today and you're thinking, oh, the last thing I want to hear is someone talk about marriage, can I just encourage you to hang in there with us? We're going to be looking at how marriage points to Christ and his relationship to the church, and that includes you. Also, as Christians, married or single, we all need to understand and be able to present a biblical perspective and point people to God's plan and why marriage is to be so valued. If we, as we teach, we hit a nerve, if, if something we say makes you uncomfortable or even angry, let's remember the, and apply the ABC that Philip so helpfully been reminding us about. A is for... Ask God, or a bit of audience participation. Ask God, why am I feeling like this? What is it that's been said that is creating that emotion in me? B, Bible. Go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? And C, chat. Find someone to talk to, someone that you trust. We're a community that we uh, want people to talk about issues, uh, even if they're difficult. We want to cast a biblical vision of marriage. We want to unapologetically paint a picture of what the Bible teaches about marriage and the distinct roles between husband and wives in marriage. We want you to gaze at what the biblical ideal of marriage is and stir you to live like that. We know this image will serve as a mirror to shine light on our actual marriages. And that can be painful as we see a mismatch between what we see and our own experiences. Our hope is this. We believe change is possible in marriages and marriages can be turned around. That change starts with us as husbands and wives as we choose to fulfill our wedding vows. As a church community, we want to support each other and honour marriage so that our marriages thrive. And because of this, our children, the church family and the wider community that we live in also thrive and are blessed. If we look at Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, the account of creation, God brings man and woman together and unites them in marriage. That's the first wedding with Adam and Eve. And then right at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see another wedding, Christ and the church, his bride. Throughout the Bible, the marriage motif is on display. In the Old Testament, it was God's covenant relationship with the people of Israel. God was the faithful husband who loved and pursued an often unfaithful wife. In the New Testament, Christ is portrayed as the bridegroom who loves and cherishes the church, the bride of Christ. So we will focus in a bit on Ephesians chapter 5. But first of all, I want us to zoom out and look at the big picture of what the Bible says about marriage. In the last couple of weeks, we've been camping in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. We saw the first wedding ceremony as God makes, makes, creates Eve and brings her to Adam's side. This is what Matthew Henry, in his Bible commentary, writes about this marriage. The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him. Not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. As the first wedding takes place, the author of Genesis writes this, Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
In marriage, the husband and wife no longer live under the authority of their parents, but become a one flesh union. There is an honoring of parents and a listening to their wisdom. But as a couple, you're to make your own decisions and create a distinct family culture of your own. The Bible teaches us, firstly, that marriage isn't a human invention. It's God's thing. He initiated it. In Genesis 2, he was the master designer who created Adam and Eve and brought Eve to Adam's side. He was the architect of the first marriage. When Jesus was questioned whether divorce was okay or allowed, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is God's idea. He called Adam and Eve to be joined together in marriage into an exclusive oneness relationship. And what's fascinating is Jesus is answering this question in the first century AD, where there are lots of damaged relationships, where <laughs> divorce is taking place. Jesus is saying, even in this broken world that's marred by sin, God's intent for marriage is the same. The bar has not shifted in any way. It is still to be an exclusive covenant relationship between a husband and a wife that's not to be broken. Secondly, Marriage is to be a safe haven and a refuge. We read, Adam and Eve were naked and they knew no shame. In a world that's tarnished by sin, where there's competition, backbiting, criticism, marriage is to be a safe haven and a refuge. Husbands and wives are to know each other intimately. They are to know what it is to be loved, to be accepted, to be cherished as they are in a work, as a work in progress. Sorry, just missed a page. Sophie knows my strengths and she's known as my weaknesses. She knows my beauty and she knows my ugliness. She's my greatest champion, but also my most insightful critic. And that's how it should be. And just to say the church family should also be like that. It should be a community where we can be vulnerable and honest, less of the nakedness and no shame, but much of honesty and vulnerability and people accepting us as we are. Our marriages are to be flavoured with the biblical directive of forgiving and forbearing each other's weaknesses. In marriages, we to find grace when our nakedness and vulnerability are on display. The grace we receive from God, which is he forgave us our wrongs when we didn't deserve it, he honoured us when we deserved no shame, is to be reflected in our love for one another. Thirdly, marriage is primarily not about staying in love, even though, of course, love, staying in love is important. It's about keeping a covenant. For those of you who are married, on your wedding days, you made a covenant with each other. You stood before uh, God, you stood before a crowd of people, and you made promises to each other. So in 2003, in 2nd of August, I stood up and I made these vows. I, John Ford, take you, Sophie Foran, to be my wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. In marriage, there is a call to covenant faithfulness. Married life may have its storms. It will have its dark nights. It will be painful at times. Yet we're to remain faithful to the covenant we made. And the reason we are to remain faithful to each other is because our marriages are to reveal a mystery that was hidden in ages gone by, that angels long to gaze at, which the prophets spoke about. Because fourthly, marriage is designed to display the covenant faithfulness and the love between Christ and the church. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul is saying an outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that we submit to each other. Husbands and wives filled with the Holy Spirit serve each other and humble themselves to lift the other up. Following these verses, Paul outlines what this submitting to each other looks like in various family relationships. Husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, slaves and masters. And then he goes on, to, he goes on to talk about the relationship between husbands and wives. Sophie's going to read these verses to us, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'd just like you to just close your eyes and just, these verses for some of us might be quite hard to hear. Let's just open our hearts up to God. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that your word is true and it is life-giving. God, would you open up our hearts? We want to be receptive to what you speak to us even when sometimes it seems hard. Lord, we want to pray, speak to us, uh, help us have soft hearts to receptive to you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our marriages are to display the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. Our marriages are to point beyond the temporary, beyond our momentary marriages, because the Bible teaches one day our marriages will cease and there will be no marriages in heaven. And it's to point towards that which is eternal, the relationship between Christ and the church, which will never cease, which will endure forever. 
in the dance and the union of marriage, Paul is teaching that husbands and wives play different roles. Paul introduces us to two terms that are perceived negatively in our culture, headship and submission. These terms are seen as toxic. Instead of being a cause of thriving, they're often seen as a cause of abuse, crushing wounds. And we want to be honest. These terms have been abused. Men have used these words to dominate and control and abuse in marriage. Men have used these words as a trump card or a mandate to always get their own way. However, Paul used these terms to describe a healthy, thriving marriage. We're not just to discard them or throw them out because they don't fit uh, with uh, how they've sometimes been used in the past. We need to redeem them. We need to create a biblical reality of what they actually look like and apply them into our lives. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at Paul's instructions to husbands. Sophie says going to look at Paul's instructions to women. And then we're going to really unpack what does that actually look like in our married life as we try and embody this truth. In these verses, the husband plays the role of Christ. Just as Christ is the head of the church, Paul says the husband is the head of his wife. Just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands. What Paul is saying is that in marriage, a husband has a unique leadership responsibility. He has a God-given responsibility to lead in marriage and family life. That may be hard to hear. But what does that leadership look like? Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Husbands, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? We're willing to lay down our lives for our wives. Jesus died for his church so it may know life. It's unlikely that we're going to have to literally have to die for our wives. But it may involve dying to preference, dying to selfishness, definitely laying aside at times what you want to do. After we'd been married nearly a year, our first wedding anniversary was coming up, and I thought, what can we do to celebrate this great year that we've had? And I thought about it long and hard. How can we make it really special? And one of my friends had a Porsche. And I thought, you know what? Wouldn't it be a brilliant day to celebrate it? We get this Porsche for the day. We zoom around loads of country lanes, uh, have a lovely pub lunch, and then come back. I thought that will be a first and wedding anniversary treat that Sophie will love. So anyway, so we got the car. I was driving around these country lanes. I was driving, obviously, Sophie at my side. It was just brilliant, honestly, breathtaking, a bit like my Top Gear moment. And I had a great day. And it was... Afterwards, there was a bit of a penny drop moment, which was, I had a great day, and it really was what I wanted to do for a first uh, wedding anniversary. And Sophie, it was okay, a bit nonplussed, she enjoyed it, but I was so thinking about what I wanted and not what she wanted. I wasn't loving Christ in that instance like Christ, I wasn't loving Sophie like Christ loved the church. That was when I didn't do it. An example when I did learn to do it a bit better was when we were in Istanbul and we got in the habit of every year Sophie would come back to England for a break for a sort of three, four, five days so she could recharge, connect with friends, and I was in Istanbul looking after the four children. And that was a choice, and that, that felt costly. That was sacrificial, that was hard work, 
praise to my wife who does it all the time. Uh, but there was something of sacrificing for Sophie's good. Husbands, we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. We're to make sacrifices. It means, for some of you fathers, it means getting up in the middle of the night looking after children. I know that sacrifice in marriage kicked in for me when children particularly came along. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Christ's goal was presenting the church as holy and without blemish, a church that was beautiful and displayed splendor. The picture of the church that Christ saves is one that's thriving. Husbands must give themselves to creating a culture in their marriages where their wives can thrive, a culture where their wives are able to be all that God called them to be, and where their wives' relationship with Christ can flourish. Paul says in verse 28, husbands are to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now, Paul's assumption here is that people do love their own bodies. He says in verse 29, who doesn't love their own body? So in sort of 20th century, we sometimes struggle a bit with that. But Paul assumes people love and care for their body. And he says, just as you love and care for, nourish, cherish your body, you've got to do that for your wife. And interestingly, when I care for and when I love for Sophie, actually, Paul says, I'm loving myself. And that's partly because there's a one flesh union, but also it's because when Sophie knows she's loved and delighted, delighted in and cared for, that overflows into family life. That overflows in our relationship with each other. And it's brilliant. Paul uses a phrase. He uses, talks about nourishing and cherishing your bodies. Your, and I, I want to say, what does it look like, husbands, when you cherish your wife? How do you cherish your wife? How does she know she's dear and cared for and loved? And I want to challenge you. Think, how can I cherish my wife? So for me, one of the things I try and do when I'm coming back from work or, and coming into the house after a busy day, I try and go, what does it look like to be fully engaged when I'm back? So I'm fully focused on helping with the children, on helping Sophie so that family life's easier rather than just being disengaged. We've got to think, husbands, about what does it mean to cherish our wives. Let them know that they're valued and dear and cared for. Husbands, our calling is to servant leadership in marriage and family. And both those words, servanthood and leadership, are important. There's a divine calling to live in such a way that your wife thrives and knows she's loved and delighted in. It's about laying down your life so that your wife and your family thrive. As husbands, we have a bottom-line responsibility to provide and to protect our wives and our children, both spiritually and physically. Husbands, pray for your wives. Pray for your children. For the first few years of our marriage, I was too passive and still can veer into passivity if I'm not careful. For husbands like me, who tend towards passivity, we need to take responsibility and we need to step up. We need to choose to walk in our God-given responsibility. Some of you may be more alpha male-ish, and you don't have an issue with taking the lead. And in fact, by nature, you can be dominating. For you, you need to work at leading in a gentle way and sacrificial love. 
their own sacrificial love. As husbands, you have a calling to lead in marriage and family life, to be a sacrificial guardian, to be the thermostat that's setting the tone, creating the culture for a Christ-centered marriage and family life. Paul says to wives, let's just read those uh, verses from verse 22 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So John and I did uh, a marriage course in preparation for our own marriage. And when it came to discussing marriage vows, I was quite adamant that I was not going to have the word submit in our vows. I was still a relatively new Christian at the time, maybe three or four years since accepting the gospel. And I never really thought about or studied these verses and how they related to me and my relationship with my future husband. And if I'm honest, my immediate response was one of defence. I read these verses and I, I felt my worth and my value as a human being was being challenged and belittled. And I felt like saying to John, well, who are you that I should submit to you? And yes, I love you, but I don't really feel I need to submit to you, not in this day and age. I grew up in a non-Christian family. Uh, my parents have actually been together for over 50 years and they love each other very much. But it's clear in their marriage that my mum has and does very much lead the family. And when it came to John and myself to discuss our vows, I really felt that my experience of their marriage was influencing and rubbing off on me. So what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Maybe it's easier to look at what it doesn't mean. John Piper, a pastor from the US, helps, helpfully explains this. Submission is not agreeing on everything your husband says. In verse, 40, uh, in verse 24, we saw it says, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is different to agreeing with everything your husband says. You have two people coming from two different backgrounds, having experienced different things. Actually, they're going to bring different opinions, perspective and values to a marriage. And actually, this is really healthy and can be celebrated. Number two, submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. A marriage thrives on robust discussion and debate. Submission is not about dumbing down your intelligence. Number three, submission does not mean you do not try to influence your husband. If I see something that John has neglected or seems to be going wrong on, I'll let him know with love and gentleness. <laughs> In fact, it's my responsibility as a Christian to point out where he's going wrong. Number four, submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. So not being led into sin. If John was leading us somewhere that was clearly sinful, I need to be submissive first to Christ and not follow him. Number five, submission does not mean living or acting in fear. I don't fear John. On the contrary, I'm submitting out of love and from a place of security. So what does submission look like? 
Submission is the calling of a wife to honour and affirm her husband's leadership in marriage. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you're passive and I have to make sure the family works. When we as women submit to our husbands in marriage, it's not submitting because we're of less worth or value. Because we've seen that in the way Christ sacrificed himself for the church, his bride. It's not because we don't have as much to offer or bring to the marriage. We submit to our husbands out of our love for Christ, recognising the authority and greater responsibility our husband has been given for our protection and provision. In fact, the husband and wife relationship should be a beautiful reflection of Christ's love and relationship to the church that John has already mentioned. And if our husbands are are loving us as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, then it should be a complete joy and delight in submitting to a man that loves us unconditionally with all our faults and failures, who wants the very best for us and he would sacrifice himself for us. And actually, this is what really struck me when I was reading and studying these verses in relation to our marriage vows. It was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. I was like, wow, this is how John should love me. This is what God has said John should love me like. Submission like this isn't the wife being controlled by the husband. Submission like this is beautiful and freeing and the best for the wife so she can flourish and walk in the fullness of what God has for her. And of course, part of that will be helping her husband. I also felt a weight and understanding of the mantle that a husband is given by God. A new respect that actually one day John will have to stand in front of God and give an account for how he led me as a husband. How he fulfilled his role. I really felt the weight of that for him. I still feel the weight of that for him. John Piper says, Our marriages are a testimony to the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Our marriages will either tell the truth about that relationship or it will tell a lie. Wow. (laughs) What a challenge. What do our marriages say about their relationship with Christ and the church? Through Ephesians 5, as I grasped Christ's love for his bride, how husbands are to love us as Christ loves the church, and felt that weight and responsibility our husbands have been given by God, I came to the place of agreeing that it was appropriate to have the word submit in our vows. Moreover, I was really excited to have these words in our vows. I was beginning to understand God's plan and design in marriage and how we were caught up in that. And as I was going through this process, John really gave me space and time to do this. He didn't pressure me or or simply say, we're having those vows uh, and that's that, tough. (laughs) He respected me and, and gave me space and listened to my objections. And I expect he prayed. A lot. He was already demonstrating his role of head of the household and he was doing it with love and kindness and gentleness. And eventually I was won by Ephesians 5 with the help of the Holy Spirit and I realised actually the model of marriage that I had grown up watching wasn't biblical. Just as husbands have a divine calling to step up and lead, wives, we have a divine calling to affirm, encourage, and let our husbands lead. 
wives, this might mean we have to actively take a step back and give space for our husbands to lead. It may mean we have to challenge and lovingly and respectfully encourage our husbands in their leadership role and be specific in how we'd like to be led. And wives, let's pray for our husbands in the role God's given them. And we're aware, uh, we've painted a picture where both husband and wives are actively fulfilling their God-given roles in marriage. What if you're married to a non-Christian? What if your husband or your wife is a Christian but not fulfilling their marriage vows or their role? Uh, For those of you who are married to someone who isn't following Jesus, we'd say this, actively choose to play the role God's given you. The Apostle Peter wrote this, uh, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. My dad isn't a Christian, but my mum is. And I've seen her living out this verse in her married life. I once asked my dad, what's it like living with a Christian when you're not a Christian yet? And his response was this. It was, you know what? I think it's brilliant. I'd recommend everyone to marry a Christian wife because they are so loving and kind. And I think there's something profound about that. He still needs to become a Christian. But there's something about the fact my mum was displaying and fulfilling her role and doing it beautifully. If you're married to a Christian and your husband or wife are neglecting their vows and have ignored your challenges to change, we'd encourage you to involve the elders or talk to one of the spiritual fathers or mothers in the church who can come alongside you and speak into your marriages. The Me Too hashtag in the past two years has tragically highlighted how prevalent abuse is. And let's call it out, abuse is never acceptable or right in marriage. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, marriage, let me urge you to take the courage and reach out to help for help. I know that the eldership team and their wives would be compassionate and committed to standing with you and protecting you. But if we're both seeking to live out these roles, what does marriage look like? Our marriage isn't perfect. It's, it's not a mirror that reflects this teaching perfectly, but we're seeking to live it out and embody it. Before we married, we agreed that if we disagreed about something and a decision needed to be made, so we came to an impasse moment, I would make that decision, I would take responsibility for it, the buck would stop with me, and even if I got it wrong, Sophie wouldn't say, I told you so. And 16 years into our marriage, there hasn't been a crisis moment like this. Now, that isn't because we agree on everything. But whenever we make a big decision, we've discussed it and listened to each other, and we've come to a way ahead. Our oneness in marriage means we include each other. Normally, when we disagree, it's to do with personal preference rather than something directional or whether something's right or wrong. And in those instances, I as a husband want to lay down my preferences to prefer Sophie, to love Sophie like Christ loves the church. 
Actually, when we were preparing this talk, Sophie and I were chatting, and we were a bit concerned that we didn't have many of these stories of crisis moments where I had to make the decision. And so we talked to a number of friends of ours who'd been married for longer than us, who had marriages that we respected. And in a couple of those relationships, the male is far more of an alpha male than I am. But they're Christians, so they're seeking to live this out. And what was so fascinating was actually in their marriages, this wasn't a common theme. I think one of the couples mentioned there was one time when a decision needed to be made, and he made the decision uh, because they'd agreed that's how it would go ahead, but there'd been disagreements and a crisis came and he made the decision. But apart from that, it wasn't a big issue of lots of bumps in the road where crisis came and the husband said, I'm making the decision, and the wife says, okay, I disagree, but I'm going that way. And on a retrospect, we came to realize that the lack of conflict in our marriage in the past 16 years is something to be celebrated. It actually reflects marriage working as it should. The image of headship and submission can wrongly be seen as the husband leading the way and the wife begrudgingly following behind. In reality, there's a oneness in marriage. There's a walking side by side and joint decision-making. Situations where the husband has to make a decision in which his wife disagrees but chooses to submit to his leadership should be very rare. So how do we outwork this in our family life? Just practically with the fact that I've been a stay-at-home mum for the majority of time since our kids were born, I've tended to be more hands-on and around the children more, but we made a conscious decision that when John is at home, actually he would take the lead in disciplining the children and setting the boundaries as head of the family. I also like to wait till John is around to make decisions, saying, let's wait for Dad and see what Dad says for things that might affect us as a family. Now, a lot of the time, I could make these decisions perfectly well by myself, uh, or I know what John's going to say, but it's more a matter of demonstrating John's leadership and being united together. So, for example, one of the children might say, oh, this weekend, can we go to Thorpe Park, or can we go swimming, or let's eat out this week. And I'll just say, well, let's wait till Dad gets home and we can talk about it. Or let's see what Dad thinks. It's a showing respect and me affirming John's leadership. With the children, we will often talk about the fact we're a united team. But we're also clear about the fact Daddy uh, leads our family. When we moved back from Turkey this summer, that was really hard for our children. They've really, they really struggled with it a bit at the time. And they're certainly still struggling with it today. And... Uh, what's interesting is obviously they then express that and they express anger and frustration. So you've ruined my life by coming back. And what's fascinating is that's been directed at me. It's, Dad, you've ruined my life because you made the decision to come back to Tur from Turkey. And what's fascinating is we so clearly with the children said we both feel it's right to come back to the UK. But I've been the one who's received far more of the heat about that. And fathers, I'm fine about that. And that's right. As I, I primarily take responsibility for the decisions we've made as a family. I've got to own that. And it's right that sometimes I take the flack and the heat. I think where we've most beautifully seen this dynamic at play was as God led us, led us to Istanbul. I was so excited about the possibility of church planting in Istanbul a city of 15 million people where hardly anyone knew the gospel or heard the name of Jesus. 
But for Sophie, the prospect of moving to Istanbul wasn't as exciting. She didn't want to raise our four children living in a flat, in a city that was chaotic and didn't sleep, that had few green spaces in the Middle East. That wasn't part of Sophie's dream or vision of raising children. Yet Sophie knew that I was feeling that maybe God was leading us as a family to move to Istanbul, and I'd openly shared that with her. I don't think I was pushy about it, but I did say something like, I think God's maybe leading us there. And I did pray a lot for Sophie at this time about it. So over a period of a year or so, I kept bringing Istanbul to God. I was honest with God about the challenges of moving there. I knew how to do life in the UK with kids. I was supported by family and friends and comfortable in my role. I knew that moving to Istanbul would be laying things down, stepping out of my comfort zone, stripping away my securities, and learning to be wife and mum for in another culture. And an interesting thing happened. Over time, my thinking shifted from if we live in Istanbul to when we live in Istanbul. I'd look at buildings and think, oh, they won't look like that in Istanbul. It was almost a, a sub, subconscious shift, and I catch myself doing it. And God began to stir and excite me about what this adventure could be. And I'm so glad he did. I loved living in Istanbul. The things that I was initially worried about weren't big things in the end. The adventure we've been on, meeting new friends, learning a new language, and seeing God move in people's lives, and, and eventually seeing a Turkish-speaking church established, was all worth laying, the laying down for. And what was so beautiful about it was uh, we as a couple were seeking God's will. There was a sense where, in a sense, I led and said, I think uh, God's leading us this way. And Sophie wanted to honour God. She wanted to live for God, and, we were, uh, and she followed my lead. And we're thrilled about the adventure we've been on. It's been painful and glorious. <laughs> and we love the adventure of being married together. You know, when both of us are seeking to put Christ first and embrace our God-given roles, we found marriage seems to thrive. There's a oneness we've found in marriage. We're walking together. We're learning together. We're getting a sense of what's God calling us to as a family together. It's not just me out front and so falling behind. We're together in it, side by side. But there's also been an embracing of our differences, our different personalities, our different upbringings, and our different God-given roles. Brothers and sisters, let's embrace our distinct roles in marriage our God-given roles in marriage. As we play our part, we have an opportunity to point towards the mystery of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for him. Titus wrote to slaves in Crete, and he told them to obey the teaching he was giving because they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Brothers and sisters, in our marriages, we have the calling to adorn and show the beauty of this doctrine. We have the opportunity for our marriages to be a living and breathing billboard of Christ's love for the church and the church's love and response for him. We have an opportunity to redeem terms that are seen toxic in our culture and show what they mean when filled with Christ, uh, the, where husbands lead in a way like, that Christ, like Christ loves the church and wives submit in a way that's an attitude that says, I'm going to support my husband's leadership and encourage that not begrudgingly, but out of a sense of delight. We have an opportunity to point towards something that's going to last forever, which is a relationship between Christ and his church. Let's pray.
Just say, I do think there's a but God moment this morning. I mean, obviously, many of us are in different places in the room. We've got some people where you go, actually, this, ma- this talk is just to encourage and affirm and say, hey, keep going. For some of you, it may be a, a call out to say, step up. Some of you need to, both of you, husbands and wives, need to step up into what God's called you to. For some of you, it may be just a rebuke. And actually, God's saying, you need to change. And that starts now. But God treats us as individuals. And he doesn't, if there's a bruised reed, he wants to lift it up. He doesn't snuff out a a wick that's smoldering. He cares for the weak. And God treats us as individuals. We're not a faceless army here. We're God's people. And he knows and loves us as we are, knows our situations. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we long to play our part in your plans, whether uh, we're single, whether we're married, we want to play our God-given roles in displaying the gospel in our lives. God, I want to pray for us as husbands and wives to play our role well, to display the sacrificial love of Christ as husbands, to display what it is to lay down lives, to counter costs, to be a sacrificial guardian. I want to pray for wives who are fierce, who are everything God's called them to be, who are strong, and also who support and affirm uh, their husbands in their uh, leadership role in marriage. Lord, we ask, help us. We need your help. Lord, we realize this doesn't come naturally to us. We need your grace and your power and all the resources of heaven to help us. So God, we come to you and we say, we need you. We need you. Would you help us put into practice truth and display your glory by doing so? Amen.